Sunday in Advent, celebrating the church in purple. And as you can see by the vestments uh, in our sanctuary, as well as our candles, purple is the color of Advent. yet still be together as one body. And if you were able to see my tie close enough, you'll see it from a distance that it is what color? By now you're getting used to this. But if you got up close, as my Sunday school class was able to do, you will see that it is a combination of little red dots and little blue dots. Blue states and red states. Democrats and Republicans. Liberals and conservatives, all of the different stereotypes. The fact is that together, close enough in re- close enough in relationship, they become purple. We are a purple church. We celebrate our unity without uniformity. Advent means the beginning of things, and the first Sunday of Advent starts by looking at the end of things. Begin with the end in mind, Stephen Covey said in his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and that's what today we will be doing. It certainly calls us to be aware of the birth of Christ, but primarily Advent is the season where we are aware of the end of the world, when Jesus will finally come and reconcile all things to himself. All things will be made whole. The second coming. While we at Riverside have spent a lot of energy on the end times and the apocalyptic events of those end times, we are at every communion service reminded when we eat this bread and drink this wine, we show forth the Lord's death until he come again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. These end times expectations were part of the air that the early church breathed. After Jesus had died and was resurrected, they remembered that he had told them that he would come again, and they expected that imminent coming within their lifetimes. All of the disciples did, even though Jesus said, I do not project the day that it will happen, they all felt it would come within their generation, all in their lifetimes, especially the Apostle Paul, who started all the churches in Asia Minor and Philippi, Ephesus, Colossae, Corinth, and especially Rome, with that expectation that Jesus would come soon. And with that expectation in mind, he instructed the early churches about how they were supposed to live, waiting for it. This is exactly what Paul is dealing with in his letter to the church at Rome in the 13th chapter, verses 11 through 14. Now, as I said, we begin with the end in mind. I'm going to begin with the end of the text in mind, and we're going to read the end first and then the beginning. Beginning in the 11th verse of the 13th chapter, it reads, Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us properly, as in the daytime, not in orgy and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
reading it then, the first, the last. Paul proposes what we are supposed to do in the meantime, verses 8 through 10. Owe therefore no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up with this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. With no small irony, there are many ministers who have made a living out of the dying of the world. Every day they stand up and say when it will come, in the month, in the year, in the hour even, and then they ask for donations to their building fund so that we continue this ministry for a long time ahead. Hollywood has been on this as well with all of the apocalyptic movies that come out. Seems to be more and more these days as well as television shows about the end times. This fever seems to me to be epidemic. There's a whole lot of money in promoting the end of things, and I, unfortunately, think that it probably makes us a little cynical. I think, however, that there is a reason for it, and the reason that we are attracted to it. Why entertain by apocalyptic events? Why are we pulled into these end-time shows? Is it some sort of black, nihilistic funk? I think otherwise, that deep down in each of us is this need to be reminded that in fact there is an end of it all. In fact, there is an end of it all. An end. That life is not interminable, a relentless, ever-present groundhog's day, repeating the same old sound and fury, signifying nothing. That there is an end to the story. And this reminder, this conscious awareness, wakes us up to the reality that one day things will come to an end and that we had better do something with our life in the meantime. We need to be reminded of that. Without an awareness of death, life has no meaning. Death wakes us to the possibilities of life. And in a strange kind of way, that's how Advent begins. Maybe because for most of us, death seems to be an abstraction. This seems to be a vital point we should not miss. The fact is that in our culture, we live in extraordinary times. Medical technology is amazing. It's an enterprise that heals us in ways 50, 60, 70 years they would have thought impossible. One generation before folks died in childbirth, in the same rates of undeveloped countries today, this country lost many people to bacteria, to water issues, to childbirth issues. You break a bone, it breaks the skin, it becomes infected, you die before penicillin. There were heart attacks. Death was more ever-present. When people died years ago before funeral, funeral homes, they would hold weights. You would take the body and you would put it on, in the coffin and you would put it on the kitchen table and you would make sure that the body did not wake up 
before you buried it that it was fully dead. Now, because of cremation, we inter the body before even the memorial service. It's as if there is no body. The person just completely vanished, just melted into the infinite cosmos like you would pour soft butter into melting chocolate for fudge. This leaves us and our younger generations at a loss, I think. When death comes, it is always a complete surprise to them. I'm always reminded how far away they are from the possibility of death. Not all, but some. When they lose a loved one that's not even very close, maybe an aunt and an uncle, and, and, they, and they come to me so off balance, reeling, completely extraordinarily lost. Why, why did this happen? Why did they die, they ask, as if it was an impossibility? Protected from the actuality of death as our folks are today, except maybe in video games. They don't understand the inevitability of it. As natural as it is, as going to bed at night and saying our prayers, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, which were the prayers that I prayed as a youngster. And as scary as that prayer is, at least it reminded us of our own mortality and finitude. It reminded us that death was a possibility always. I remember my first lesson in the philosophy of time when I was in third grade and went to play badminton with my fifth grade friend. She lived two doors down and we would often play badminton. She was probably the most brilliant woman I have ever known, I thought at the time, and she was also one of the most beautiful, in spite of her unfortunate name, Ida Moose. After one particular stringent badminton match, she decided to riddle me with this riddle. She said to me, you know, Steve, that today we'll never leave and tomorrow will never come. What are you talking about, Ida? Tomorrow will come when it turns 12 o'clock. No, because when it turns 12 o'clock, it will be today again. Today is always today, and tomorrow is always tomorrow, and it never comes to be tomorrow. And I thought, you know, if that's what you're going to learn in fifth grade, I'm not sure I want it. It took me a while to get around to understanding what she was truly talking about. She was just messing with my mind. Reminds me of the great baseball pitcher in the major leagues, Dan Quisenberry, when he was in, in a terrible slump. And a reporter asked him, uh, Mr. Quisenberry, uh, what do you foresee for your future? And he said, in quite depressing terms, well, the future is just like the present, only longer. So there you have it, the infinite future just like the present, where it's always today, and tomorrow never comes, and it sounds like Peter Pan and Never Never Land, and so we raise our children. Paul knew better. For him, the end was always before him. If not from the apocalyptic ending when Jesus comes again, we're still 
looking for that in 2,000 years. And I would like to say that I agree that Jesus will come in our lifetime or our death time will be the second coming of Christ. For Paul, it was imminent, and if not Jesus coming, then death was all around him, either from the Roman Empire or certainly by disease. And with that sense of urgency, the sense of the end things are close. He gives a sort of deathbed confession about what's important for Christians in the passage that we read this morning. He tells us this, Owe no one anything except to love them. Owe no one anything except to love them. For this is the fulfillment of all the 413 laws and the commandments and the commandments themselves, all summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. There's enormous wisdom and truth in this. In fact, it's almost Buddhist. Wake up, he says. Become aware, he says. Live in the moment now, he says. For we don't know about tomorrow. Live as if there is no tomorrow. And here's how. Love each other as you would have them love you. This is not sentimental, romantic, schlocky, wet, touchy, feely love. Paul is talking about agape love, the way that Christ loved us. The way that Christ suffered for us. This is love that is a verb, not a feeling. This is love that is about action and giving and doing and serving rather than receiving and expecting and being served. To love one's neighbor as we would have them love us means to give them always the benefit of the doubt. The same way we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. It means to make excuses for their behavior the same way we make excuses for our own. It means to do no wrong to them through all the hundreds of ways that we do it, through gossip or misinterpretation of something that they said, or wishing them ill, or just making life generally hard on them. You know what I mean. Someone sets you off or hurts your feelings or makes you angry and then you turn your back on them first and then you might let slip in public some little secret confidentiality that they told you when you were close and then you might like gossip a little bit. It, it's all about getting back, about getting the pound of flesh back. We get our feelings hurt, we carry a grudge, we, we got we to have somebody pay the price. What if our, after our feelings have been hurt, we instead give them the benefit of the doubt? That maybe they're having a no good, terrible, awful, bad day, as my kids used to say. Or maybe we just misunderstood what they were saying, or we didn't understand the context that it was being said. Or maybe there were lots of circumstances underneath whatever it is that they did, too complicated, as it usually is, for us to really understand. 
And so we choose to love them still and to put our own little hurt feelings into the trash can where most of them need to end up in the end anyway. Where, in fact, they all will end up in the end anyway. When the end is near, this is the point. When the end is near, when death is close, have you ever noticed with those folks what they say, say is meaningful? It's not their jobs, their legacy, it's not what they own and all their stuff. In almost every case, they will say, it is the relationships and the people in my life that I have loved and been close to, or those relationships in my life that have for some reason been broken, and how I wish I could reconcile them. Faced with the end of things, Paul understands, we finally are called to wake up to what is important. My first wife died. I became obsessed with telling everybody I knew, my parents, my children, my friends, I love you. It occurred to me in that incredible tragedy that life is indeed finite, and I might not be able to say that to them again. So I told them over, we know Steve, thank you. I love you, but I love you. Thank you, Steve, we know. Life is so finite. Listening to Krista Tippett's radio show, On Being, I commend it to you. It comes on Thursday afternoons, I think, on NPR. A couple of weeks ago, she was interviewing this physician from Dartmouth uh, named Ira Biot. He's a leading voice for the hospice and end-of-life movement. He's written a book or so. Uh, and he's, he ministers to physicians who are reticent to recommend hospice uh, only recently, within the last five or ten years, have physicians been willing to do that because it seems to be counterintuitive to what they've been called to do to heal people. But he's, he's now helping other physicians see how important this is. And in this interview, he makes the point that in spite of the culture's denying of it, the denial of death in our culture all over the place, of course we all die. And that being the case, he points to and promotes what we can all do in order to die well. Not as oxymoronic as that sounds, dying well, that is the truth. To die well, he says, is to die in peace, in shalom, the way God intended. It means to be open to the opportunity to face things that we've not faced before because we've been so afraid or hurt mainly our own personal relationships with other people. All those broken and unresolved relationships with our family members and friends, and we've all got them. All those ruptures and hurt feelings and events that still wrap around our backs full of guilt and blame. When you ask a dying person what it means the most to them, they will always say those relationships. So Ira tries to get the dying patients that he sees to be able to do four things, just four things. There are four short sentences, there are 11 words. For everyone in your life, he tells them, say to them these four things. Forgive me. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. 
This is what it means, he says, to die well. Come to this place of forgiveness and gratitude and love. This is not easy. These are just not words that you say in abracadabra, it's there. They are grounded in deep sincerity and passionate pain. They must come from that place. But when they come, and they must, they free us all. This being true then, this being true, isn't this what it means to live well in the meantime? Why do we have to wait for the end of the world? Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors. 